0: Sister Helen Prejean has worked hard over the years advocating against the death penalty. From her initial work with Elmo Patrick Saunier as a spiritual advisor while he was on death row, she has accompanied six men to their executions. She is a member of the Sisters of St. Joseph, and she has been a nun for well over 60 years.
1: So why are we talking to Sister Helen today? We're talking to Sister Helen because... In the United States, only 23 states have abolished the death penalty, also known as capital punishment. Virginia was the last state to abolish it in March of 2021. And the majority of Americans, according to Pew Research Center, about 54% of Americans, still believe that capital punishment is morally justified. In 2021, 11 people were executed. Just a few years ago in 2019, according to Pew Research, about 98% of people on death row were men. This is fairly common with death row inmates mostly being men throughout history. Additionally, among death row inmates, 41% of them were Black. 41%. And in the U.S., the entire Black population is only 13%. So how does the United States actually use capital punishment? Historically, we've used various methods like hanging, electrocution, gas chambers, firing squads, and most recently, lethal injection. Currently in the United States, lethal injection is the primary mode of capital punishment, with certain states allowing a secondary method if the death row inmate chooses to do so. To learn more about the criminal justice system and capital punishment, we caught up with Sister Helen Prejean. Sister Helen, thanks so much for being on the podcast with us today.
2: I'm very happy to be here.
1: Could you introduce yourself?
2: to our listeners. I'm Sister Helen Prejean. I wrote Dead Man Walking after witnessing the execution of two human beings. I wrote Death of Innocence after witnessing the execution of two innocent human beings. And I just wrote River of Fire, telling the story about waking up to justice and becoming an activist.
0: Thank you so much. It's a lovely introduction. I
2: mean, I accompany people on death row. I just came from death row today in Louisiana, where Manuel Ortiz is going on 30 years on Louisiana's death row. He's from El Salvador. He's innocent. 30
0: years. 30 years.
2: I know. You can say it in half a nanosecond. And the courts are so broken, they are so clogged, they are so impossible. And so I've gotten a lot of insights on where we went wrong from the very beginning about the death penalty. And what appeals to me about your podcast is so much of what happens in prisons, and especially in the killing chambers, is secret, and people do not see it. And my mission in life, because I am a witness, and this is the prelude that's in River Fire, the fire in the book is They killed a man with fire one night. They strapped him in a wooden chair and pumped electricity through his body until he was dead. His killing was a legal act. No religious leaders protested the killing that night, but I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. And what I saw set my soul on fire, a fire that burns in me still. And now here is an account of how I woke up and came to be in the killing chamber that night and the spiritual currents have brought me there. So it's when we witness that we then bring it out to the people because it's cloaked and it's secret and the people don't see it. There's this uh, saying in Latin America, what the eye does not see, the heart cannot feel. So we've executed, we have gassed and shot and hung and electrocuted and lethally injected 1,500, 500 plus people. And none of that has been witnessed by the public. There have been two court cases trying to make executions public, and they've both been defeated. So when somebody like me, all while Tim Robbins worked on the film of Man and he kept saying, and it was true, the nun is in over her head. I was totally <laughs> in over my head. I didn't know about the criminal justice system. I didn't know about the courts. I didn't know about this thing. Are they going to actually kill this guy? So I had everything to learn. I found out that that can be a gift in a book when people realize that, that you're not coming off on page one as an expert. Now, let me tell you about the death penalty. The no nun is speaking here. Say, go, this nun doesn't know what she's doing. So let's just see what happens to her as
1: well as to everything. So here we are. Here we are. So I know you, so your mom was a lawyer. Sorry, no, your that- mom, your dad was a lawyer and your mom was right. a nurse. And you became a nun. How did that happen? Well, you know, it
2: goes in families, you know, lawyer, nurse, nun. No. (laughs) How did it all happen? Well, my daddy's story came up in poverty on a plantation My mama, too. They were very poor. So the way out for mama to move from family... Uh, in Louisiana was to go to nursing school. She became a nurse. Daddy's way out was to get an education, which he did. He became a lawyer and they married. And it was the traditional family structure. Daddy the breadwinner, mama the homemaker, and lover of the children. We got such lavish affection and love. And we are a Louisiana family. We are earthy, we are warm, we are deeply affectionate, love good food. The mom and daddy had great parties. It took me a long time as an adult to realize that. And alcohol could be a problem for people because it was always so much fun. And if the maiden aunts had too much (laughs) drink, they stayed on the couch and then they brought them home the next day. I didn't know alcohol could be a problem. And uh, it's just I just had such a wonderful childhood. And when I went to school, we had great nuns. St. Joseph Academy, Baton Rouge. I'm in Baton Rouge now because I stay here overnight. It's a shorter drive from the prison. I just drove by my school, St. Joseph Academy, with great love and affection. Developed my leadership. There was that door that I'd stand as president of the student body to welcome students in the morning when they came to school, developed intellect, developed critical thinking, faith, a spirituality that was not all over the place but grounded and connected to life and treating people with kindness and compassion and but the story of River Fire was about waking up to justice and not just being charitable to people and being kind to people. And then dealing with the problems of poor people and all was just praying and asking
0: God to take care of them. Because you've done a lot of work before working with Sonia with the poor. Well, actually, I was 40
2: years old before I realized I needed to move out of the white suburbs and go and live among African-American people in New Orleans. That story is in River of Fire. And it was a deep spiritual insight. See, I had a, Christianity can be interpreted the following of Jesus, be a very personal Jesus, me kind of thing, very prayerful, go to church, pray for poor people, but you don't get engaged with systemic injustice. And so you could do charity. Thanksgiving, you give people baskets. All oh, that's nice. It's all good. But it was a waking up to the systemic injustice. And I didn't get that till I went and moved in among African-American people in a neighborhood. And they became my teachers. And I saw what it was for a single mother try to raise her children on a pitiful welfare they got and the terrible public schools. And I learned what poverty does. It reduces your choices. So Geraldine Johnson saying to me, she said, my boys are talking different. They acting different. We got these drug deals going on everywhere. And she said, sister, I can't move out of this neighborhood. It's like we in a reservation. I can't afford the rent where they gentrified half the city. Gotta stay here. And i Learn that poverty, what the main thing it does, it reduces your agency and f- reduces your choices. Learn about white privilege. That's simply because I'm a white person. It's not even what my intent or not. But I'm never going to be looked at funny or have a house detective follow me in a store simply because I'm white. I haven't done anything to deserve any kind of, but I'm white. And black people, the long, long legacy of slavery is with us. Nowhere is it with us more than in the penal System of, of prisons and jails. And you just draw a direct line slavery releasing slaves, extrajudicial killings like lynchings, and all law enforcement turning their faces the other way. Convict laborers, because the plantation owners needed to still have labor. Y'all are shaking your heads, yes, a lot. Y'all must know a lot about this stuff. <laughs>
0: I do it because I'm, follow, I'm following what you're saying, but I also, yeah. I mean, I've definitely learned a lot about that as well in, in the past few yeah. years, for sure.
2: Just think of the country now beginning white people, especially beginning to wake up through the death of George Floyd. What the eye does not see, the heart cannot feel. And maybe COVID helped with this because people were in their homes. They weren't at jobs. They weren't shopping. To look at nine minutes and 29 seconds of a Black man's life being squeezed out of him under the knee of a white policeman. I mean, what happens to you as you witness that? And so then that enkindled the debate and the whole thing of. That's not a, a rogue policeman. That's a systemic thing. And so, and it's going to take a while, but you can just see the pot's really stirred now. I mean, the year that, that happened, the best selling books were all about systemic racism, the legacy were, of slavery, yeah. white privilege, the whole bit. So it takes a lot for a whole country to wake up. And the way you have social evolution, evolving standard of decency among people is these moments in history happen and they. There's a waking up, and then it starts spilling over. It takes a while, but I believe something's been unleashed now that's not going to be undone.
0: I agree with that, and I know you've I've seen documentaries, and I've seen the film, and you know I'm aware of the, the books you've written. And you talk about how you know the poor, right? When it comes to the justice system, they don't really get a fair shake, right? I mean, they don't you're get a fair representation.
2: Understat- you allowed a few little understatement. They don't get any kind of justice. I mean, it's terrible. It is unspeakable. I didn't know that. I thought, see, what did I know? I write this man on death row. Go visit him. I thought we had the best court system in the world. I'm thinking like a white person. It's dominant. Ninety percent of the judges white. Ninety percent of prosecutors white. Ninety percent of the whole system white. And boy, do you see race in there from the very beginning, starting with with the death penalty. Clearly, if a white person's killed. That's eight out of every 10 people on death row because the victim was white. And when people of color are killed, there's not no outrage. It's not the same outrage because you have to value the life of that citizen that got killed in order to seek an ultimate penalty if you don't care about them. Same thing for homeless people being killed. But race is so clear in the whole system. And uh, so how do you wake up to that? Well, I woke up to it because I began to have a deeply personal experience. Here's a man now I've known two and a half years. And I watch as he's killed in front of my eyes. Came out of that execution chamber that night, that April day, 1984. And the first thing I did was throw up. I had witnessed this calculated death and I could see it in its essence. You are rendering a human being completely defenseless and you are deliberately killing him. And you know where the truth is told about these state killings is on the death certificate. Because where it says cause of death, you have to write the truth. Homicide. Homicide, homicide. really? It means human beings killing another human being. Yeah,
0: that's true.
2: Now wow. states like Texas will say, well, legalize uh, homicide because of the death penalty, whatever. But you cannot escape it. It's homicide. Human beings killing another human being.
1: Let's talk about Patrick Saunier for a bit. So you started writing letters to him and then became his spiritual advisor. And now you're one of the leading advocates and possibly the only nun to abolish or advocate for the abolishment. Of capital punishment.
2: Our congregation and plenty of nuns in the country now are very active in working to imprison reform and against the death penalty. So I'm not the only nun. Okay, But I did kind of spark a few things.
1: You led the way. So did you ever think that you would be here? Is this your calling?
2: It sure is. You know, the moral imperative on your soul When you witness something, and it's all cloaked in secrecy, see? When I came out of that execution chamber that night, I knew that most people in Louisiana, probably 90%, thought what had happened was what you call justice. And you do have to talk about the crime. By the way, when I wrote Dead Man Walking... This is really good about storytelling and how you shape a story. I had a great editor because in the first draft of Dead Man Walking, I was so into the human rights of this human being being killed like this. And so my editor, Jason Epstein, read the whole thing and I went up to meet with him and he said, nobody's going to read your book. You're none. You wait far too long in this story to talk about what did Pat Sonier and his brother, Eddie Sonier, do? what was the crime? And people are going to be looking for that and seeing if you could be honest about it and see if you're going to feel outrage over it. Are you so on the side of this murder and not wanting to see him be executed? And he said to me, if you don't talk about the killing point blank rage a gun at the back of the heads of two teenage kids, 17 and 18, and their bodies left in a harvested sugarcane field, and you don't do that in the first 10 pages of the book and people, people sense your outrage at it. Nobody's going to read your book. And then the tension in the book, your job, he said, you bring them right into the murder, the outrage over these innocent young people being nipped in the bud of their lives, their parents doomed to grief for the rest of their life of having lost their children. And then you got to take your reader and step by step by step, you take them Into this execution and the court system that's been set up, supposedly, that we're going to reserve the death penalty only for the worst of the worst. How the courts work, how politics, you got to bring people through everything. And then you bring them into that execution chamber. They've been through the crime, they've been through the grief of the victim's family. And you then expose all along the way only poor people are chosen overwhelmingly those who keep, and overwhelmingly those who get poor defense. Because see, when you go to trial, it's supposed to be an adversarial system of coming to truth. Prosecutors present, defense present. Prosecutors are in charge of the original police report. Prosecutors have all of the forensic evidence. Prosecutors, when they see anything that points to the possible innocence of the person who's been accused are supposed to turn it over, To the defense, and they don't because politics so infuses the system. Actually, you never have people being executed unless a prosecutor has decided from square one that they want somebody to get death. It's in their hands, complete discretionary power. That's why we were all in such horror when we watched on federal death row after a hiatus of 17 years where Trump and Barr decided to kill 13 people, and they did. Why? Because they could. That was Trump's way of saying to his followers, see how strong I am on law and order. And it's broken. The way the Supreme Court set it up in Greg V. Georgia was broken from the beginning. And impossible criteria, only the worst of the worst.
0: Who knows what that means? I was going to say, what, what would be the definition of the worst of the worst? What are they considering? when they decide to go for the death penalty. Exactly. What
2: is the criteria? The worst of the worst. When you look at what states have done with their statutes, one of the worst of the worst is what the status of a citizen is killed is. So almost all the states put in if you kill a policeman, but not if you kill a farmer, not if you kill a public health worker. So you make start making these distinctions and it's fuzzy. And so it's up to these individuals. And then you get microcultures, To decide what it means, the state legislatures of the 10 southern states that practice slavery, always, who was killed? Well, who's valued? White people. I mean, and then if you have a black person that kills a white person, I mean, you're way up there in the meritocracy of death about getting the death penalty. So it was fuzzy. If, like you kill my mother. I said, well, you kill my mother, but did it happen during a felony? They made these lists of aggravating circumstances. Was it during a robbery or they just killed your mother? Well, that doesn't count. And so, of course, whenever you delineate law, You say here, but not there. So you have like for the killing of a child, but you got to define child, 12 or young. So your child gets killed, but your child happens to be 14. Well, that's not the worst of the worst. Impossible criteria coupled with complete discretion of prosecutors to seek death or not. And that's where we really see where it has failed because politics enters into it. And we know for a fact, whenever it's an election year, prosecutors are going to go for the death penalty more. Especially when they're pleasing their constituents. You had cowboy Bob Macy in Oklahoma City county that went for 54 death sentences because he got elected by his constituents who said to be tough on time, go after these murders and go get them. So he got political points every time he did that. And it's in his hands whether he's going to seek death or not. See how broken it is. And then, of course, only for the worst of the worst, up to the discretion of prosecutors to seek, which makes them subject. I mean, we had in Louisiana... When prosecutors were running for a higher office, they bragged about how many death sentences they got when they were campaigning to be judge or higher office. They had these backroom awards they gave each other called the Louisiana Ha Ha Prick Award, showed the state bird, the state pelican, flying with hypodermic syringes in its talons. And that means I got a death penalty. And they had little plaques on their wall. And I know a lawyer happens, but see, when you're getting points in a society and there's political currency in it, so you're putting people's lives in the hands of these people. It took 1500 years of dialogue with the Catholic church, but we finally arrived at it getting to the place to say you cannot give the state the right to take life. Amnesty is documented whenever you give governments that right, they're going to say, oh, well, this is going to be the worst of the worst crime. And they start listing what crimes. You can never entrust it over to fragile, ignorant, biased, political people who are going to carry it out.
0: What do you think that the conversation for overhauling the justice system, justice system as a whole, should begin. I it mean, has. It's done. Basically, most everyday people, right? They they have their black and white opinions about, okay, I'm for the death penalty, not for it. They have very hard line sort of ideas. So how do we Well, well begin maybe to... not so
2: hard line, maybe not so hard line, Zoe, because most people I've found in these 30 plus years talking to the American people have not reflected deeply on the death penalty at all.
0: That's true. It's very surface.
2: It's like, oh, yeah, you ask them these questions. Somebody does this terrible crime. Do you think they ought to get death? Yeah, that's in the abstract. The more you educate them about what actually happens, you just see support for the death penalty dropping. And just in 2019 was the first time where you gave people an alternative question, that life sentence and that could society could be safe. It dropped below 50%. It's all about educating the public and bringing them to a deeper level of reflection. But for penal reform, as you can see happening in the country, like look at Louisiana. I mean, why keep people in prison for the rest of their lives? We're looking at the whole thing of a life sentence with a nonviolent crime that involved drugs I mean, just drugs. You can really see consciousness beginning to change on that, now beginning to have alternative courts, drug courts. Why put that young person in prison for 30 years for having marijuana or a bit of drugs? And, um, you know, and Michelle Alexander did great work. Uh, What did she call it? Jim Crow by any other name? What is it called? Jim Crow. I think it's the new Jim Crow. The new Jim Crow. And that's when they changed. It used to be drugs with just a misdemeanor. And Mm -hmm. it got changed to felony. And many, many more. Yeah, many, many more white people do cocaine and drugs just out of the demographics. But massive incarceration of black people. And then when you get out of prison, You go to get a job. First question, have you ever been in prison for a felony? Yeah. You can't get public assistance. Felony changed everything. So now there's talk to reform that the streak three strikes in the out that California did looking at that. The last crime was he stole somebody's purse and now you're going to put him in prison for life. So you could just consciousness changes slowly. But it's people like you doing these kind of discussions and getting this out over
1: the air. That's what changes things. Yeah. And people like you, Mr. Helen? Well, no, it's
2: us together. It's us hmm. together talking about stuff we know and always presuming that the American people are good. It's just they haven't reflected much. They're not vicious. They're really by the time. I mean, as I work with people on this issue and they read the book or they see the film, they go, I didn't know it was like that because they'd never thought about it. They didn't know what a difference it means if you're poor and you can't retain your own lawyer who's going to be really assertive for you at that trial. And it's gonna cross-examine that jailhouse snitch who's sitting up there claiming that that you confessed to him when you were in the cell, and they got a plea deal for doing it. When you got a good attorney, they don't get away with that stuff. But I mean, they're poor, and you got
0: to you uh, got to be able to to afford yeah. that attorney. Yeah,
2: yeah. It's not like public defenders aren't good. I love I love talking to them. I I'm asked to address public defenders in a lot of states, you know, and I just go, "You're it. You're the one in the breach." You are the one there for your client, you know, and they need support and help in a lot of ways. They're very brave, good people, you know, but they're overworked and underpaid and they can't get money for independent forensic testing, a DNA test. So it's set that way from the beginning, you know. So your statement, it's unjust for poor people, couldn't be truer. It's never been just for poor people
1: this whole idea of impending death or knowing when you're going to die is amazingly profound on someone's mental health. So So what goes on in your mind and what goes on in the minds of the people that you work with on death row?
2: Yeah. Well, you can have years and years of just sitting on death row. It's like same all kind of sensory deprivation. Wake up in the same cell about the size of a small bathroom, boredom but then you cannot stop imaginative, conscious human beings from anticipating and imagining. And you know what's the most common nightmare I've had? Because I've accompanied six people to execution. The most common nightmare is, oh God, the, car- the guards are coming to my cell. they are taking me. It's my time. I'm yelling. I'm screaming. They're dragging me out. And I wake up and I look around, it was a dream, not tonight, but it is going to come. And I, it fits the definition of torture. The UN Convention Against Torture, which the United States has signed on to, defines torture as an extreme mental or physical assault on someone rendered defenseless. The defenselessness is important in the definition. What could be more extreme than that? And actually, when they set those dates, you start counting down the days. This is my last Monday. This is my last Tuesday, my last Wednesday. How can you not anticipate you're being killed? But because we have a callous, blind, privileged Supreme Court that who looks at the words Cruel punishment and cannot recognize that this is cruelty, cannot recognize that it's the most basic of human rights, an inalienable human right, as the UN Declaration of Human Rights says, inalienable simply because your person is a right to life. In other words, governments never have a right to decide their little criteria, whatever it is, and take your life. And we do not have a Supreme Court that is open to the evolving standard of decency that's happening around the world. 40 years ago, only a couple of countries, a few, a handful, didn't have the death penalty. And now the vast majority of the 194 nations of the world no longer have the death penalty. But we have a, a parochial kind of court that says we are going to interpret the words the way we see the words. And they pull out this fig leaf of originalism that we can only do as the framers decided this means or the plain meaning of it. I mean, you look at those times, they were hanging witches. I mean, but they use that, that's a ruse, that's a manipulation, that this is the framework of interpretation that they feel has to be applied because they can't recognize that when you look at that word cruelty, to do this to human beings is an act of cruelty. I mean, real struggles with the Supreme Court and what they're doing on a lot of levels. But we are the citizens and we are the ones who own the Constitution. We are the ones who evolve in our understanding of things. And we change things. We change things by changing the consciousness and conscience of each other through the experiences we have and we share, which is why your podcast is so great. Because things that are hidden and cloaked, you bring them out and open. You have the same role that theater has and art has. You pull open a curtain to look at a deeper reality or otherwise that people would never reflect on.
1: Well, we need her to be our spokesperson. (laughs)
2: <laughs> we are folks we're doing this. how did y'all come up with your title i gotta ask
1: you
2: that i said i'm doing it.
1: really I mean, no it was
2: it, yeah really
0: it was a very late night um <laughs> i think it might have been after midnight and we were we like, we had tried to come up with the title for a while and it was i mean we thought we just kind of brainstormed a bunch of words right like Words that were meaningful to us in terms of what we were trying to do. Okay. And so part of the idea is that, you know, you're releasing people from being bound by this secrecy, right? They can open up and they can discuss things, right? Because things are cloaked and and you want to just sort of open that up. Um, That's right. That's
2: right. That was just... That's great. I don't know what other words y'all threw at, (laughs) dwarves. But I mean, let me tell you, when I came out of the execution chamber when I watched Pat being killed, those were the words of my mind. I said, This is a secret ritual. Wow. And all the people who have been have been in and witnessed it. So that then that moral imperative was on me. And I started then, that was 1984, been doing it ever since. But I found in the American people not this viciousness and not this desire to have this legalized vengeance thing is they never think about it. So how do we get the word out to people to think about it? Because their hearts are good. You have some people who are embedded in a point of view because their ideology seals them there. Well, those are not the ones you have conversate, but that's not most people. It really isn't most people. So you can see the shift happening. Virginia, first ex-Confederate state abolish the death penalty I just went for the celebration three weeks ago wow they did hung the most people had the most yeah. slaves, had the yeah. most harsh penal institution had the worst district courts federal district courts that upheld every death sentence and kaboom they did away how did that happen that citizens working just like us getting the word out getting the word out did you know this do you know how this works? supposed to be for the worst of the worst. What does that mean? Not your garden variety murder? Not your ordinary murder? What's ordinary murder? And you start raising the questions, bringing in people with the experience. You have wonderful lawyers and people. Mike Rattlet. he was the first one to write a book on innocent people being executed. And Mike's a sociologist. He has done the first race studies to show the clear pattern that it was when white people are killed that the death penalty sought. how race plays a part. He played a real role in Colorado, and they did away with the death penalty. All the concentration on getting one person to execute him. What about all the cold cases of the murders unsolved? And he knows all the statistics, the percentage, all these murders never solved. Aren't these victims suffering just as much? And they don't know who even... Murder their loved one. What about the cold cases? Why you want to invest all the money killing one person? That you, I mean, he's got a lot of good stuff.
1: So you're 82.
2: Yes.
1: <laughs> and, and kicking. You 82. are very kicking.
2: You are very kicking. What a great girl. <laughs>
1: oh, no,
2: very kicking. Sister. I'm
1: going to well, say that
2: about myself now. I'm very kicking. <laughs>
1: So you're 82 and you've been doing this for 40 years. Would you be doing anything else, Sister Helen?
2: No, no. Once your eyes see something and your heart catches fire with it, and you know that the only way we're going to change it is by giving witness to it and getting out there and waking people up. It's a foundational belief and trust in the goodness of people. If I was a pessimist and believe people were, you know, hard-hearted, crude level, no. But it's always been based on, because in my own life, it took me a while to wake up that I needed to be involved with justice and changing things systemically wrong. Not just being a sweet Southern lady, being kind to people, you know. I don't know anybody would ever describe me as a sweet Southern lady. I <laughs> have to take that back. Oh, I am very picking uh, <laughs> You, anyway, you do seem
1: maybe, sweet, and you 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 sound very
2: mean, southern. Sweet. I don't know, sweet, but humor is a big part. You know, humor is a big part of being a southern and being a Cajun in Louisiana. I mean, so I mean, you gotta have humor. You gotta have humor. It's like the spark keeps you going. It means you got a sense of perspective. You know, you're in it for the long haul. Well, hey, all the big things in life, for the arc of the universe to bend, it's gonna be a long haul. But you know what the gift of it is? You get to meet and be with the most amazing people. When you get in a community of people like people in Amnesty International, like these lawyers, like these human rights people, like these mitigation specialists that get involved with these, you are with some of the best human beings in the world, including media people that do good stuff and get the story out. And you get to meet these people and it sparks life in you, you know? Very true. If I'm very kicking, what are y'all? Very what?
1: Where you're very kicking sidekicks.
2: Oh, you're you're a very psychic. No, y'all are proponents. You've initiated something. You're agents of change, big time.
1: So I had a different idea of capital punishment when I was younger. When I was younger, when I was more emotional. We all did. And Zoe and I were talking about this, and it was education- learning more about how it affects not just the people on death row, but their families and the victims' families. That's right.
2: You know, when uh, interesting, when New Jersey, when their legislature in 2011 was debating repealing the death penalty, 62 murder victims' families testified. And what they basically said was, don't kill for us. The death penalty just re-victimizes us. What they meant by that is they were saying, we can't have our grief in private because by seeking the death penalty, you've raised up this person who got the death sentence. It was in the news every time there's a change in the status of the case and the media is knocking at our door. What do you think now? We can't go even to a private place to grieve. And then we wait and we wait. This so-called justice that we've been offered is that we're going to get to send a representative to sit on the front row and watch as the state kills the one who killed our loved one. And that's supposed to bring us peace or the word that's used the most, closure. And some of us said, and when we go home afterwards, after this execution of the person, the chair our loved one sat in is still going to be empty. That has not been filled again. And another human being has been killed. And you justify it by saying, you're doing justice for us. We don't want that justice. It revictimizes us. That's kind of what prosecutors use to just show they're doing a righteous thing. We're doing it for the victim's family. The average wait between the end of a conviction at trial and execution is 15 years. Often it's 20, 25. And so this poor family is in this holding pattern. How do they heal?
0: They, I mean, I feel like that's really difficult to heal if you know that 15 years after the trial is is when that person's life is going to be taken. But it's still a lot to go through in those 15 years.
2: And you know what? The other thing is it, divide, it can divide a family right down the middle. Some want the death penalty, some don't. And they get in arguments with you. I knew a family, oh. their sister was killed. They were in Baton Rouge, actually. And their sister was murdered. The... Sons in the family were all for the execution, their sisters were against the execution of the person, and they were having public debate with each other and tearing the family apart till finally someone in the family said, Can we just keep this within the family and talk it just among ourselves and don't go public? It tore them right down the middle. Then finally there was growth, reconciliation, and they could come to be of one mind. Even the sons who were the most wanted the execution the worst, came around. And one of them actually even started bridges to life in prisons to help prisoners get restored before they leave prison so they didn't go back. So human beings are always capable of great change. And that's one of the, the arrogance of the death penalty is for people within a society to say, you cannot change. You are in your essence corrupt and evil. And that was the way they got the public to be afraid. That's the other thing about public mm-hmm. made to be afraid that these people are so evil in their cat by nature of their character, their what they have done, that we can't even put them in prison because they'll kill other inmates, they'll kill guards. We gotta kill them. It's the only way we can be safe. And you make the public afraid, you demonize people, you can do anything. And then the people don't see it. The cloak around it is complete. You don't see the suffering. You can't have compassion. And so it can go on until people bust out of that. Witnesses come out of those chambers like I did. A lot of people have done. And then you just say, how is this making us any better? After Pat Sonier was executed, the two teenagers were dead. He was dead. Three people then were dead. And then the irony was just a few weeks later, there was great publicity about his execution. Somebody kidnapped two teenage kids and shot him. You know, you can't prove it's a copycat murder, but it sure didn't stop it
0: from happening. That's true. I mean, just the death penalty isn't isn't changing the crimes that are committed, right? People aren't... right. It's not helping. Right. Re- rehabilitation is much more important. You know, it's called Department of Corrections. <laughs> <Yeah>, we <we're>, don't <we're laughs> correct so. you all
2: right. We don't kill you. But oh, I But look, hope is rising. We are. And thank you for what you're doing. This is the kind of conversation
1: that just is and one thing I was gonna ask is how do you cope with everything? But I, I, I think it's humor. I think it's your humor that yeah. keeps you going. And
2: you, know, and you know, you have a deep inner life, a spiritual life. And by that, I don't mean fuzzy woo-woo stuff (laughs) trying to be in another world. I mean, deep-souled, where am I now? And when we are authentically, when the purpose of our life is clear and we're doing what we need to do, what we feel called to do, because we cannot not do it, that integrity of soul bolsters us. And then, as I mentioned before, all the good people that you meet when you do this work together bolsters you and then humor and community and play. And you got to have a whole life. You know, you got to play cards with your friends. You got to have an occasional beer. You got to look at a good movie. You got to grow some pansies in the backyard and writing for me is, is really a, a good way of also, I guess, healing. When I wrote dead man walking, I guess that helped me clarify clearly what had happened With the watching the death of this man and launched me into and um, I'm working on a book now out of my journals, out of my journal, and this is a little advanced preview that (laughs) you will get because it isn't published. Here I go looking in my journal and I see that RBG died Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and so I look at that and then that evokes. The three times I met Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so what I'm doing in this book is I go to the notes in the journal and then what it what it sparks. First time I met Ruth Bader Ginsburg was when Dead Man Walking came out. And I was in Washington, D.C. for the tour. They start you. Random House was really got behind the book and had me on this big book tour. Start New York, go to Washington, D.C. I'm in Washington, D.C. And she invited me to come see her in her chambers with our clerks because she really loved amazing. the book. And she knew the book was going to do some good work. So meet her there. Good work on the book, sister. Keep it going. Okay. Second time I met her was the second book I wrote was The Death of Innocence. And in it, I took on Justice Scalia on his arguments for the death penalty and how he invoked religious arguments. He quoted St. Paul's epistle in Romans 13 that actually used the argument that God was for the death penalty, the wrath of the sword, and that when we obey civil authority, that is actually the authority of God behind it, which is a theocracy. That is not a democracy. We don't get the power from the authority of God, right? And I took him on in those arguments. He also happened to go duck hunting with my brother, Louie, on Pecan Island, Louisiana. Here's Justice Scalia mixed up in our family, going duck hunting with Louie. I'm writing this book and I'm <laughs> taking him on. And this, this interpretation of scripture, which he used and said, I'll leave my faith at the door when I go to interpret the Constitution and all, as if you can leave your moral values yeah. at the door. Yeah. Okay. And I'd taken him on. Okay, second meeting, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm in Washington, D.C. for the book tour, and she invites me into. And I love this lady. I admire this lady. I mean, this lady, her loss on the court has just been there. It's just, just indescribable what we've lost. And I admire her so much. But she was friends with Scalia. So she was a little myth about a book because she said, you know, sister, um, don't get into all this. Supreme Court justice, so <laughs> you, know, you know, stick to what you're doing at Dead Man walking get out there and educate the people. And i could tell you, he was miffed because he was miffed, I think. At any rate, I walked out of there and I was so aware that it was Scalia's fifth vote that killed Dobie Gillis-Williams, a man I accompanied. It's the first story in Death of Innocence, an African-American with an IQ of 65, and Scalia's fifth vote killed him. So I went, miffed or not i'm doing yeah. what i'm doing here yeah. and because when you have people on the court that are the third time was when we had the opera we have a great opera of demi walken it's going to be at the new york met in 2023 it's been all over the world i'm
0: going to write that it's down
2: the most performed modern opera and it was that performed at the kennedy center which i found out and ruth Babe ginsburg was not only there But the people at the opera said that she had pestered them. Well, pester may not be, but had encouraged them for over a year to do the opera of Dead Man Walking. And she was there. That was my third time. So those are my three RBG stories evoked by, there's my note in the journal, RBG died. And then, you know, then you go three stories and it's happening a lot. So that's the way I'm writing the book.
1: It's facts of your life, which is amazing. You know when it's going to come out?
2: When it's finished, it comes out. Uh I'm gonna guess. <laughs>
1: when it's finished, it comes out. <laughs> Thanks, Sister Helen.
2: No, yeah, yeah, you needed that. The
1: anticipation. No.
2: Yeah, you know, I say the same I thing. Say a year and a half, two years something like that. It's a much easier book to write because, you know, and and so I do some of the deep spiritual meditations like St. Augustine. You can do whatever you want.
0: It's very different from uh, writing about horrific, like viewing a a death. So And and all the underlying
2: things, underlying things that are in it, like the court system that's in Mm -hmm. it, uh, you know, all those things. And you got to have your facts Boy, you got to make sure. One thing when you write a book, you ever write a book, you get people to proofread and stuff because you got to be right. If you do a meeting, yeah. it's off on a little something it passes into the air and evaporates. But printed, you want to make sure you got it. So you have got a lot of
1: people looking at it, right?
2: Yeah. And, um, and it doesn't change. I mean, they can go back. That book came out in 93. They can go back and say, oh, you got that wrong, got that wrong. Well, this was fun. This was thanks. great. It was. Pull
1: back that book. <laughs> this was an honor. Thanks. It was. Thanks. It really, it truly was. Mutable.
2: Well, look, and- I give you love. Thank you, my sisters. All right. Keep kicking. <laughs> you
0: <Thanks. should. laughs>
1: As you just heard, Sister Helen continues to do her tireless advocacy to educate others about the death penalty in the United States. To learn more about her, check out her website, SisterHelen.org, and don't forget to watch the movie Dead Man Walking, starring Susan Sarandon and Sean Penn.
0: You can also check out Sister Helen's books Dead Man Walking, River of Fire My Spiritual Journey, and then The Death of Innocence. You can also check out the documentary Sister on Vimeo. We'll also have links to the documentary and Sister Helen's books on our website. You can find those in the show notes. We had a great time talking to Sister Helen, and we'd like to thank her very much for being on the show.
1: Let us know what you think about capital punishment. Let us know in the comments or send us an email. We would like to hear from you. And with that being said,
0: that's going to do it for this episode.
1: See you next time. Thanks for listening.